You're listening to Inside Acting. To find out more and make a donation, visit InsideActingPodcast.com. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Inside Acting. My name is Trevor Elga. And I'm AJ Meyer. And on this podcast, 30 episodes, damn. On this podcast, we interview casting directors, agents, managers, writers, directors, filmmakers, anybody involved in the entertainment industry, and we package them up into this little podcast, and we deliver them to an iTunes near you. And of course, we want to keep this as open a dialogue as possible, and uh, there are myriad ways to uh, get in touch with us. Uh, we've got a voicemail and an email, for instance, on this particular episode, um, so thank you very much for getting in touch. We'll be discussing those, and um, we also have part one of a sort of uh, it's another another noodle baker. another noodle baker another noodle baker another noodle bacon interview <laughs> with um, actor director. He's a multi hyphenate just yeah, like Mark, just like and Mark. he's actually. It's a good segue to go from Mark's episode to these episodes, because that's how we got in touch with this guy. His name is Alan Barton, and uh, he's the executive director of the Beverly Hills Play- Beverly Hills Playhouse, which um, not only produces plays, but also has classes and that kind of thing, which he talks about um, in his interview. <clears throat> and uh, there's also some really great stuff about um, new media and the and the way that the industry is going that yeah. might not be in the first part, but it might be in the second part. So look forward to that. Um Here's some, he's just got some really interesting stuff to say, um, and uh, what else? What else am I missing? I, I, I that's, feel like that's it. I think there was so much in that interview that it feels like we can't quite say enough about. Yeah, it. that's true. That's yeah. true. So uh, enjoy that. Um, and uh, before we get to that, we've also obviously got some uh, shout outs and uh, our questions to get to. Yeah. So so let's get to it. Right off the bat, um, we got uh, a couple great donations from some listeners. Kelly Keaton from Los Angeles sent us in an, a wonderful donation that really kind of helps us keep going. And she has some great things to say about the podcast as well. So thank you, Kelly. And also our European bedrock listener, Philip Wimmer uh, from Germany, has sent us another donation. And, um, I, you know, we, we can't thank him enough for his support, not only in donations but also in spreading the word and many thanks for for keeping keeping the uh, shout outs coming yeah yeah thank you very much <clears throat> but you know what we're just going to throw up a link to his website and his podcast on our website so you guys can check it out any german speaking actors in los angeles um check it out i'm sure it's wonderful <laughs> I don't know. Um, Sarah Beth Goer is another listener who wrote in, had some really wonderful things to say about the podcast, and she, she shared a link with us uh, to Joseph Middleton's blog, uh, who's a casting director in LA, who's fairly in demand, actually. A lot of people have, have wanted to get in front of him, because he casts some pretty good stuff. Um, and his blog is all about the industry, and I think, AJ, you were saying that he reviews your reel? 
that's why she sent us the the email in the first place. I guess uh, on his website he will review 15 seconds of, of an actor's reel. I don't know if he charges for that service. I think it's free, but either way, I mean, you know, if it's not too expensive, that's pretty cool because we we to in, in, into inside acting get a lot of questions coming in, uh, people asking like, can, you know, can you check out my reel or do you have any advice for reels? Uh, a lot of questions there, and and you know, why not get advice from somebody who's actually in casting, yeah, um, instead of you know two dudes with a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <clears throat> exactly. And actually, that's a good segue to our first question, which comes from uh, a listener in Brazil named Thales Correa. Ooh, that was beautiful. Thank you. Those nice Thank little you. gringo R's there. I had a, yeah. <laughs> How American and white of me. Um, but he had, his question was basically uh, about the, the kind of cultural boundaries in Hollywood. You know, if you are an actor from another country and your first language is another language portuguese in, in thales's instance um what do you do you know like do you want to play that up and really kind of work that niche or do you want to try and eradicate that accent as much as possible um and stick with an american accent so you can work kind of more in the mainstream in los angeles and he says he is coming out to los angeles so uh i responded to him um and just you know shared my thoughts uh, what are your thoughts on this, AJ? Right off the bat. Well, I I really like the stuff that you put in your response in your email response to him. So I'd love for you to go over those. Um, I, I I agree with what you said. You know, um, <clears throat> it, it's kind of interesting. I, the reason I like this question actually is because it you don't necessarily have to be coming from another country in order to quote unquote deal with the uh, idea of being multi-ethnic in Hollywood or Mm -hmm. an ethnicity in Hollywood. There is more and more demand for it now than there ever has been in the past, uh, thankfully. Um, They still have a long way to go. It's interesting. I've talked about this on the podcast before because I had an audition for it, but the studios will actually have diversity showcases where they bring in ethnically diverse actors um, for essentially a pre-read. You just get sort of generic material. You're not reading anything from a specific show or anything like that. And uh, you go on tape, and that tape apparently goes around to the producers and the casting directors from that studio. So in my case, it was ABC. And then my friend Michael Liu, he went in for uh, the CBS diversity showcase. <clears throat> How does one get involved with a, a diversity showcase? Get an major, invitation With a major that? studio. Well, yeah. in my case, it was through my agent. Like straight up, like the the, the agencies, uh, you know, know they're coming. I think there's a breakdown for it, um, you know, because it's not like they're casting something, but you know, it's one of those things where I'm sure they get the word out there because they want their they want you know agents to send in new talent, fresh talent, young talent who are ethnically diverse, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so those happen from time to time, but it's um, you know, it's still. An, an issue, and it always has been in Hollywood, the, the idea of, um, you know, being or, or, or unfortunately not being uh, ethnically diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that his concern is, you know, obviously completely legitimate. Sure. Um, because, you know, you might have somebody who's looking for, you know, him. Maybe he's, you know, some, maybe some casting director is looking to cast someone who is Brazilian in yeah. a feature or something like that. They're going to need somebody who not, is not only Brazilian, but speaks the language, speaks Portuguese. You know, yeah. they're going to need somebody like that. Those odds are, that kind of thing happens all the time, but the odds aren't that high. And, and you, you know, know? Speak, speaking of, of 
kind of this ethnical ambiguity. I mean, that's something we've talked about on the podcast is, is one of your kind of strong points is that you have this kind of ethnically ambiguous experience. I feel like that's really worked to your advantage. I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't because people look at me and they go, I have no idea what he is, but that can work for me or against me because it can work for me because they, they can go, I have no idea who, you know, what he is. So let's cast him as this Latino character, even right. though I'm not, I don't have any you know, Latino in me at all. Right. Um, <clears throat> let's cast him as this Latino character versus I have no idea what he is. So I don't know what to do with him. Right. Which, ha- which actually recently has happened more often than not. Really? It's I was going to say more the latter than it has the former. Unfortunately, that's surprising to me. Yeah. Cause and you so- think that they would be willing to just be like, I don't know what he is. Let's see what he can do. Well, you know? the, yeah, yeah. You'd think, <laughs> you'd think, <laughs> um, there's been, yeah, there's been a couple, like I remember when I was taking meetings with commercial agents, when I was taking meetings, one of them literally got back to my manager saying, I don't know what to do with them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And a couple of the, a couple of the theatrical agents that actually came out to see my show that my, I met my manager through when she was inviting people. And if you, if you're a long time listener to the podcast, you remember all these stories. Um, a couple of the agents that came out to see that were the same thing. They were like, I don't know what to do with them. See that 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 really kind of that seems to me like a cop out. Kind of grinds your gears. It yeah, does. It really grinds like, my gears. Because, <laughs> because it's like you don't have to do with him. Well, why don't you figure out? You know, it's like if somebody gives you a hundred bucks, you do. Do you go? I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to spend it on. It's like you know, like no. You go. Okay, what do I want? What what do I need in my life? And you look at where to allocate that. You know. Yeah. That's that's what kind of. I don't know. I don't get that excuse, but, but I, I think that I'm not think, an agent. So. I think what you just said though, Trevor is exactly what the issue is with being quote unquote ethnic in this town. That's exactly what it is. It's people going, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> they all do. talk like this too. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It yeah, is entirely yeah. possible. You are being judged by a moron. Love it. Um, yeah, no, I mean that, that's, that's the problem right there. So like, Thales or Thales or how are we deciding to say it? I think Thales. Thales. Let's say Thales. Probably closer. <clears throat> Thales is probably a brilliant actor, you know, and would come over and people would be like, uh, mm, I don't know. He's Brazilian. I, this isn't a Brazilian part. Yeah. You know, yeah. you get pigeonholed or whatever. And that, and you know, that's mostly in film and television. People are a lot more lenient with eth- ethnic, um, ethnically diverse casting in theater. For some yeah. reason, yeah, I don't know why that is. The uh, suspension of disbelief is higher. Yeah, it's so it's so ironic to me. <clears throat> I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but isn't it ironic to you that the thing that is not tangible right in front of your face, that's on a screen, <laughs> that's not live, uh-huh. has to be more real than the thing that is right in front of your face? Yeah. Because television and, and movies are like <clears throat> hyper reality, you yeah. know. It's like it's like it's it's a step above what what reality is, and then you have theater, which is reality, and it's like you you buy it more when it when it's in your face and you're like six inches from that person's eyeball on your fifty inch plasma screen TV. It's like it's impossible to not notice all those little things. Like I'm guessing, you know, I'm just. But yeah, it's very interesting. The world may never know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, go ahead and uh, Trevor, I want you to kind of recap your email response to him because I thought the advice you gave was fantastic. Yeah, he he his his question basically broke down into two main parts, and the first part was about his reel 
um, and he was saying, you know, I, I speak Portuguese. I have a lot of clips um, from projects I've done that are that I've done in Portuguese, and they look great. And then I have like one or two clips in English that maybe don't look so great. So how should I structure my reel? And and my advice was, well, if you're going to come to LA, which he said he's going to, um, you want to put the English clipping, uh, speaking clips first, and you always want the best looking stuff to be in the front of your reel because people are usually only going to watch the first. 15, 20 seconds, Joseph Middleton. Um, no, I mean, I'm saying that because of his, his <clears throat> offer, you know, right. but I mean, that's just the, the way it is. Um, but I also said, you know, it's great to have that, that ability, that niche to speak Portuguese because there's a lot of roles that, that look for people. Like, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, just thinking off the top of my head, uh, there's like a lot of gang member roles, um, for that kind of thing. There's a lot of cop roles for that kind of thing. There's a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, you name it. There's like a million interpreters, roles. yeah, yeah, for for that kind of thing. So my advice basically was was do that with the real, um, and then really, really work on your American dialect. Like get that down so it is impeccable. And then if they want the Brazilian accent or if they want the Portuguese, then you can pull that out too. But I mean, I'm thinking of actors like Gerard Butler and James McAvoy and Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman and um, Daniel Day Lewis and the right. chick from uh, Meet Joe Black. What's her name? Uh, I forget that she played the lead in Meet Joe Black, and she uh, she's she, I didn't know this until I I I talked to her at uh, at a place that I used to work, and she's British. I mean, all these actors are actors that at first pass I didn't realize were from other countries, you know. And then you've got Javier Bardem's, you know, like people like that who who have got really strong roles in in movies like No Country for Old Men. I think he has a little bit of a dialect in that, but he certainly doesn't look like his ethnicity, which I believe is some sort of like South American descent. And then you see him in Eat, Pray, Love, where he plays like that guy, the South American guy with the thick dialect, and he's the the love interest of Julia Roberts. So I, I, I'm all for diversity, you know, like show them, give them everything you can possibly give them. And, and I think working on that American dialect is the first kind of main mission for, for Thales. My completely unqualified advice. <laughs> the second part of his his well, he, he sent a response email and he, he told us about this TV show called If I Can Dream. It's a reality show that purports to take actors. It's like an American Idol, but for actors. How do you feel about that, AJ? I might not be the right person to ask. I mean, I have a T-shirt that says "Boycott Reality Television." Yeah, you know that I wear around a lot when I go out into public and stuff like that because. Mm-hmm. I just think that, you know, it takes away jobs from actors. That's exactly actually that's exactly what I wrote to him. I said reality TV is a really cheap way for the networks to make a lot of money. Yeah. And I don't know if they're really promising all that much fame with this. I think they're more just like, let's see pretty people in distress, you know, while yeah. making a ton of money off of it. That's yeah. my that's my biased view of it, but Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, I mean, you know, if you're asking for our gut reaction to that Thales, that's it. It's it's just it's yeah. it, it, you know it seems exploitative, like most of the things that are like that seem exploitative. So, but I, I yeah. told him to go with his gut feeling, talk to as many industry people as he can, whose opinions that he trusts, <coughs> and you know, I don't think anybody has ever been irreparably damaged. You know, career-wise, I'm not talking about like emotionally, but like career-wise, by participating in the show like that, bad publicity is better than no publicity. I don't know. I mean, yeah. or you know like, what I mean? or like, what's the other way of putting it? No publicity is bad publicity. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that sounds 
better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, although, you know, the other thing that I thought was interesting, and you just reminded me because you said, you know, talk to as many industry people as possible. The other thing that I like that you put not only in that email to him, but in a couple of the emails you've written recently about getting advice um, and being a a little bit wary, not weary, wary of getting advice from your friends and family, mm-hmm. people that are close to you. Yeah. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is because they may just be biased because they care about you and they don't want you to get hurt. You know, it's the same reason why, uh, you know, it's difficult for us to put ourselves out there when it comes to acting, you mm-hmm. know, because of insecurities and stuff. They may, you may be asking somebody who's willing to be insecure for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's reason number one. Reason number two, they may not have a... An, an educated view of the business. You know, mm-hmm. they, 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 they may not know anything about it. And you're asking somebody who's not part of the industry, industry advice, even two dudes with a podcast who haven't been in Los Angeles that long, who have been sort of, you know, beating the streets and just kind of, you know, failing forward and learning as we go. We may have slightly more experience than someone who has never been to LA or who doesn't know the business or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but there are other people to ask besides us. Send emails. You know, if you don't get a response back, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. You know, there's there's a ton of ways to find people's contact information online, Ross Reports, IMDb, so on and so forth. If there's somebody you want to work with, I think Alan Barton talks about this in his interview, actually. Maybe we should. I think uh, he does, yeah. Maybe we should table this for the actual interview. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, thank you for the email. Thoughtless, and uh, keep us updated. Let us know when you're in uh, La La Land. Okay, so we have a second email from a listener named Rachel Bouton, I believe. Um, And she's writing this from Oklahoma City, and and she has a a question that we've we've talked about on the podcast before but I wanted to kind of briefly address it because this is a question that we seem to get a lot and that I think is 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 pretty pertinent to most actors who are in LA because most actors who are in LA are not from LA and most actors coming to LA all actors coming to LA are not from LA so uh, her question is uh, I live in Oklahoma City. There's a great little theater and improv scene here, but how much experience and training should I have under my belt before I look at moving? Um, she says, I want to avoid being that dreamy-eyed girl who gets off the bus in LA only to wind up back in Oklahoma several months later, having been utterly demoralized. Uh, and then she says, should I look at moving somewhere mid-sized first, have like a kind of a, a, a a transition city before I move to LA so I can get some, some more kind of experience in some sort of, uh, market. And then she says, um, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that if I do that, I'll be out of touch with the stuff in LA when I do get to LA, you know, I will have wasted my time. So she seems to be kind of at a standstill from, from these kind of considerations that she's having. Um, I wrote her back and, and just gave my thoughts, but what are your initial reactions to that aj <clears throat> well we've had similar questions to this on the podcast before and I, yeah. I i think i may have even said what i'm about to say before but it it bears repeating it uh, a, a friend of mine who was actually in a show at the kirk douglas that's how we met she it was from new york and the reason she was doing the show there is because the show was cast out of New York and then it came to the Kirk Douglas in Culver City. And she said that she was really interested in moving out to Los Angeles, but that 
she wasn't, if she did that, she wouldn't work for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It would take me 10 years to build up the friendships and the connections and the networking that I've done. And the reputation. And the reputation. All that work that I've done back in New York. And she said, I think I'm okay with that. I just have to be patient. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, whoa, that totally blew my mind because, you know, essentially what she's talking about there is what we've talked about before on the podcast about building relationships in this business so that, you know, <clears throat> I haven't talked about this yet, but in the last week and a half, I've gotten offered two roles in short films because of friends or friends of friends. Awesome. Just people that I knew, you know, and I thought about it and I was like, all that stuff that you hear, especially when you're going to school or when you're this age or you're sitting in a class, an acting class, and you're sitting around and there's people around you who have the same <clears throat> hopes and dreams that you do. Eventually what happens is they become directors, producers, casting assistants, if not casting directors. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of a sudden you start getting called into offices because your friend is an intern or casting assistant. That's happened to me before. You start getting emails with like, hey, I have this role that you'd be perfect for in this short film, which is I've gotten two of those for the last week and a half. That kind of stuff starts to happen. So if your ultimate goal, if you really want to be here in Los Angeles, oh, like you got to... You yeah. gotta take the leap. Take the leap. Exactly. You gotta take the leap and just and just make it happen. Um, <clears throat> one big piece of advice that I will give you, and 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 this is coming from somebody who only drove an hour and a half to get to Los Angeles, and then went to school here, so I had kind of a support system built up. Whereas Trevor actually like moved across the country, so he's probably got a, a lot more to say about this. But I think you'll agree with me, Trev, when I say that it's a really good idea to have some kind of support system. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, friends or family that you know and have in that city, but something something like the Los Angeles Theater Ensemble, the Beverly Hills yeah. Playhouse, um, these little actor or I should say artist communities, where you can bounce ideas off of one another. You can learn about the business. You can learn about the business side of the business. You can find an apartment to rent. You can find, you know, there's all these little things that, you know, are just about living. Yeah. Not about acting that a place like New York or Los Angeles make more difficult because they are New York and Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. you know, just like existing. Yeah. Yeah. And and like I said, I'm sure you have a lot more to say about that because you actually did it. I've, I've said it from day, from the day I joined the loss the day I first saw a Los Angeles theater product theater ensemble production, um, the being with this ensemble that you and I are in together is the best thing that's happened to me in LA because I have had a place where I can do all the things you just said, network, um, learn about the business, um, find places to live, find jobs, fall flat on my face artistically and get back up again and not be worried about getting ridiculed or anything like that. Um, it's like, it's, it's, it's a home for me here. And, um, you know, there are a lot of times where I've been out here and I've been like, what am I doing, man? Like my, my entire family's back East in Philadelphia, you know, things have not been easy on them the past few years. And I, I feel a little bit guilty sometimes for being out here and not being back with them. We've had some, some deaths in the family and things like that. And, and I, I've thought about just giving up, just, you know, throwing in the towel and saying, you know, I just need to do something a little more sane, a little more sturdy, a little more stable, and just grow up. You know, I've had that thought a million times. And every single time I thought, like, but what would it be like to leave the Los Angeles Theater Ensemble? I, I don't think I could do that. 
I, I can't leave my friends. That's my home. Like that's, that's where it, that's what keeps me alive here. So I have goosebumps right now just saying that because <laughs> it really, it, it means the world to me to, to be involved with a group like that. And I think that if I didn't have that, I would have thrown in the towel years ago. I would have the first or second time that thought came up, it would have been like, yep, you know what? I don't have anything out here. I'm out, you know, but that's kept me going. There are other things, you know, but that's the main, the main thing. Um, so I, you know, when I wrote Rachel back, I, I said, you know, it is tough. A lot of people do leave, but, um, if you're young, I say, I, I told her, you know, Peter Bedard talked about this in episode nine. He said, just come out as soon as you possibly can, because that's what this industry is built around as young, pretty people. Um, but then it, you know, it does chew you up and spit you out a little bit. So you've got to make a commitment to yourself to be in it for the long haul, make a commitment to find a group of people that you love out here, like the Los Angeles theater ensemble, like the actors gang, like any of the myriad theater companies out here, or, or just a a power group, a group of actors you meet with every week to bounce ideas off of one another. Maybe you can get involved with the web series and there's a million things to do, but get out here as soon as you can and get involved be social, be outgoing, and don't be afraid to fall on your face because you're going to regret regret the things you didn't do more than you regret the things you did do. Amen. Brother. And that was my that was the end of my <clears throat> sermon. Beautiful. Um, and and I said, you know, if, if you hate it, you can always move back. You know, that's that's what everybody said to me when I was scared of coming out here. They were like, just go. You can move back if you hate it. So Rachel, thank you for writing in. Hope that helps. So I think that does it for. This first part of the episode, let's roll into our interview with Alan Barton. This is part one. Alan is the executive director of Beverly Hills Playhouse, and he's got some noodle bacon knowledge bombs to drop in this interview. So, enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm sitting here with AJ and someone we're very excited to have on the podcast, uh, Alan Barton, who's the executive director of the Beverly Hills Playhouse and someone that Mark Gant actually alluded to in one of his previous interviews. Um, this Alan is the is the guy that Mark quoted as saying, create your own door. And actually when we when we posted that episode, Alan got in touch with us and said, hey, you know, like I listened to the interview, I liked it a lot. And he actually sent us a blog post uh, that, that was kind of about that create your own door thing. And I just kind of spent a few hours on this blog and I thought, you know what? We have a policy of usually not interviewing people with whom we don't have kind of personal experience, you know, a teacher or an author or something. We want to avoid that unless we know them personally and can vouch for their work. But so much of what Alan writes about on his blog, uh, is, is just exactly what we talk about on the podcast. So I thought we got to get him in here for the interview. So Alan, thank you for being here. No, pleasure to meet, pleasure to be here. And we met 10 minutes ago. So now we have the personal experience. That's right. To, that's right. To, uh, to carry forward through the interview. Absolutely. Happens very quickly with actors. Yeah. <laughs> that instant identification. Yeah, exactly. So, um, we like to usually just start at the beginning because I don't know a ton about you. I, I did a little bit of research and I spent a long time in your blog, but, um, and we talked a little bit before the interview, but how did you get started doing what you're doing now? Uh, well, I showed up in Los Angeles. I was running away from some girl who I was completely crazy about in New York. And I knew if I moved to New York after college, I'd chase this girl and end up drunk in an alley and pathetic. So I moved 3,000 miles away to, to try to get away from that. And then in typical uh, karmic form, I landed in Los Angeles and a friend of mine was like, you know, Sabelle is out there. You want her number? I'm like, what, 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 do, you, what do you mean Sabelle is out here? The, the girl? The girl. Oh, wow. All right. And she had moved over the summer with her boyfriend to live in Los Angeles. So I'd moved 3,000 miles and ended up one mile 
from her apartment in West Hollywood. That was classic. It <laughs> um, sounds like a great short film. It was, right that here. Was, it's there's a lot to it, but uh, we're actually good friends uh, to this day. And cool. she studied at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. And so about six months into Los Angeles, I was kind of hating it, as many people do when they first move here. I'm from Boston originally. And she said, you know, you should, you should study over there. I saw you at school, and, uh, and you'd have fun. It's a group of people and a social network. And so I went, hmm, okay. You know, I would do anything that this girl told me. I had just enough sense to go into a different class from her. And so I basically started at the school as a student, as an acting student, back way back in 1990. And uh, from there, uh, trying to make a long story short, I started an apprenticeship with Milton Katselis, who was the founder of the Beverly Hills Playhouse and a renowned acting teacher in his own right, of course. And I studied acting with him for a while, pursued acting, then got into directing, which was really his profession, and apprenticed with him as a director, started directing plays. Um, I couldn't afford the classes at some point. So back in the mid-90s, I started working in the office like, hey, can I do something for you? Because I can't pay for class, that kind of deal. And they said, well, uh, can you alphabetize those student files? You know, that kind of thing. I was like, yeah, I went to a good school. I can alphabetize. And so I just started working in the office. And it was a typical kind of mailroom on up experience. I've worn every hat in this organization all the way up. So by 1996, I was the CFO. And then in 2003, I became the executive director, which is basically the CEO running the business for Milton. By then, I had started teaching for him, subbing in on orientation and intermediate-level classes that we have here. And uh, I'd started directing plays. Then in 2007, he needed someone to back him up when he was teaching the advanced-level classes. We had a teacher who took off, and uh, he called on me to do it. So I started teaching the advanced-level classes for him. And in 2008, Milton passed away. He left the business to me. I now run the Beverly Hills Playhouse with two uh, partners, Art Cohan and Gary Grossman. But I teach and direct, and then in addition to that, I'm a classical pianist, and I've, I've done that since I was four years old. I have a few CDs out that you can find on iTunes. and I oh, do cool. I do concerts over at our other theater in Los Feliz, and uh, I'm a Steinway artist. They just made me a Steinway artist, which is sort of a just a prestige status thing. It doesn't really mean that much, but <laughs> theoretically when I play, that means that they'll deliver a Steinway piano to wherever I am to make sure I'm playing on a Steinway. Wow. So that's sort of a long story short. Uh, like Gant, I'm kind of a multi-hyphenate. Can you play in my apartment? I kind of I want I want a Steinway in my apartment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm performing in AJ's apartment. Please yeah. deliver a Steinway. <laughs> yes. Wow, that's very cool. So you you made the transition from acting into directing pretty seamlessly, it sounds like. Yeah, it started uh, in the class um, with just an idea. Some guys did a scene from A Few Good Men, and it wasn't very successful. And there was just something about it. I looked at it, and I went, I know how to fix this scene. And it was just a weird kind of moment for me. I went, I know how to fix it. And I went up to Milton, and I said, do you mind if I direct the repeat on that? And he said, no, go ahead, please. And so I got together with these guys. It was like 10 guys, the big dramatic courtroom scene with Jessup. And it went terrific. There was just something about it where I suddenly went, oh, it was one of those aha moments where Mm -hmm. you just went, aha, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing because Mm -hmm. I just had a very natural uh, kind of communication with the actors and a sense, I think because I'm a musician, I have a intuitive sense of like pacing and dynamics and I hear it a certain way in my head and a lot of my directing training has been sort of trusting that instinct more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was an aha moment when I went from actor to director. But because I came from the acting training and then right around there was starting the teaching sort of apprenticeship with Milton at the school here, 
that sort of, I think, increased my aptitude in terms of dealing with actors, learning how they think, learning what goes on in their lives. For many years, I ran one of the classes. We have a position here at the school called a stage manager who is an actor in the class whose sort of responsibility is to make sure the other actors are doing okay. You know, if they have a problem, they have a situation, whether it's in the class, outside of the class, there's someone there to, to talk to, just, you know. And I held that position for 10 years or something. So I, I talked to thousands of actors, not just about acting and their issues with acting, because that was really the job of the teacher, but about what was going on with class, what was going on with money, what was going on in their lives, their frustrations, their career frustrations. And I think a lot of that came into my life then as a teacher and a director. So... That's so interesting. So you were like you were like a counselor slash yeah, Milton, almost like Milton a created these position stage manager. He based them on the old what his experience was, which was the old fashioned New York stage managers who were there to take care of the director, but take care of the production, take care of the actors. Uh, if you had a broke actor, the stage manager was there with ten bucks to say, "Go get lunch. Come on, bring it back." Uh-huh. You know the the old style ones, not the ones who just wear headphones and scream action like on a film set, but right. or, or get the actors ready. But the old style people who really took care of the production, and that's what he modeled the classes off of. So wow. he had someone who had that job, and that was me for a lot of years. And this is a great segue because I think that I, I'm just kind of assuming here that that a lot of your experience with that is what kind of helped you formulate your thinking about the industry now and the and the, the things that you write about in the blog because the blog is is you've got everything from like personal finance advice to career advice to to like the mind game you know it's a little bit of everything yeah the blog started uh two years ago before we even have it posted to the site it started as its own url that basically no one exists knew existed but a friend of mine bailey williams who mark talked about he's a producer friend of ours Mm-hmm. Uh, said he, he wanted to redesign the Beverly Hills Plus Playhouse website and was talking about social networking and social media. Said you should have this blog. And I was like, well, to say what? I mean, Milton wrote two books here. Uh, what am I going to add to that equation? I don't, I'm not, not presume to add to Milton's legacy as a teacher. And he said, well, just write about anything that comes to your mind. Write about what's happening at the school. Write about what things that you observe, what's, whatever's going on. Just you write about it. At some point, we'll... We'll tell people it's there. So I said, oh, okay. And it was that kind of thing where, you know, over the years, you mentioned the finance thing. Over the years, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of actors who don't have money for class. And there they came to me and, you know, if you can't pay for class, you can't be in class. But what's the, really the situation there? Why, why are people so hopeless about money? So, and I went through that. I, like everyone in L.A. came out, blew a bunch of money on credit cards, got into way in debt over my head and had to dig myself out at some point. And so I was just able to talk with actors about money in a way that, uh, that related to their lives rather than from a you know, CNBC program on savings, mm-hmm. which no one's going to watch. But I knew about the actor's life, the things they spent their money on, the ways they were irresponsible with it. And so that's where that came from. So it all came from kind of a life experience and an experience of actually dealing with actors in certain situations. And then from there, you know, you add in director, you add in pianist, you add in teacher. I'm just dealing with a lot of different aspects of life in Los Angeles as an artist from one way or the other. And I guess that sort of fuels my thoughts about stuff going on. Yeah, that's very cool. I was I was bruising the blog and I came across the uh, the money kind of the downloadable Google document packet you would put together. Yeah. And, uh, and your listeners can go to the blog and uh, we'll post it. We'll let them know yeah. where to go. But uh, it's just, it's called the unofficial BHP Get a Grip on Your Finances Handbook. And it, uh, there's nothing in there that I divined from God. It's just common sense financial principles, but applied in a certain sequence and in a certain way that most, I think, actors particularly understand. So it's written for them about their lives and what they can do to put their finances in order because that's something... I mean, you, you you two probably know actors who've 
gone from nothing and then you know they get that series and all of a sudden they're making 20 g's a week and we but that series may only go one year or the commercial or what have you and then so there's this constant boom bust cycle with money that doesn't need to exist if people know what to do with it yeah and you can make a lot of money and still screw it up there, now the, there are so many great things that you that you talked about on your blog and these different blog posts that I actually took notes. I've never done this before with a, with a guest. I've always just kind of kept it in my head. But I took notes because I wanted to actually hit these point by point because I love what you had to, to say. And, and one of the first things that I came across that really struck a chord with me was you talked about cinema, but you spelled it as, or I'm sorry, C-Y-N-E-M-A. Yeah, C-Y-N-E-M-A. So it only works if you're looking at the word. And yeah. If you say it, yeah. you have to say cynical cinema. It was my idea of... Um, a bunch of people, because of the new the the new digital filmmaking possibilities, which have been around for ten years, but have really the costs have really come down, and the idea of YouTube, I think, particularly the development of YouTube, which was only two thousand five or whatever, two thousand six, not yeah. that long ago, yeah. and the idea that people were shooting things and putting it up and getting sort of their own distribution deals, like just the wild west of filmmaking. And so over the last year or so, a lot of students had said, hey, I just made this short. Will you take a look at it for me? Or, hey, take a look at this thing on YouTube. Will you offer what your thoughts or what have you? And I guess I found uh, amongst them this cynical tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we were talking before we went on the air about trying to get people to see live theater and that there's it's tough because there are a lot of showcases going on in L.A. where people are trying to sort of showcase their talent to get an agent, to get money work. And I felt that a lot of the short filmmaking was based on the same kind of cynicism, which was they were trying to hit a visual punchline, a style of humor, predominantly mockumentary, dry humor like The Office or like Waiting for Guffman, and trying to do that again and again, and oftentimes trying to do that about the industry, which I think is a really big mistake if you're trying to position yourself seriously as an actor who is a storyteller who has something to offer to people who create stories for a living to make fun of your agent to make fun of actors to make fun of los angeles and its superficiality and all the things we could all do does not actually enhance your chances for success it ends up being this visual joke or a haha joke but the fact is the office is doing it better and Hmm. waiting for guffman does it better unless you're going to be better than those people with something really unique, really startling, I think that kind of dry, cynical, mockumentary feel ends up being uh, an empty experience. I certainly felt empty yeah. watching them because I felt like I was being, as I say in the in the blog post, commanded to laugh. You know, like yeah. you better laugh at this. See how clever we are being. Yeah. And I just felt like you know what you're not. You don't give a shit about this story. There is no story. Mm-hmm. It's all handheld improv. No one's writing a script. It's all everything. Everybody's improving their acting on these things. And so no one takes the time to, like, think of a story, write a script, um, meet real people about that story. Like what you guys are doing with the, the War Trilogy that you're putting on, where that writer went and met with these guys and talked with them and based a story on that. And there's something about the authenticity of that experience that I think is very magnetic. And there's too much of what I call this cynical cinema making where people are like, hey, let's get together and make a short film. And I have this really great idea. You'll be the agent and I'll be this guy who thinks you know that. You know, and you're just like, oh. God, yeah, here we please. Go not, Someone not, give me some interest, yeah. some passion, some interest. You know, not to mention that the internet is forever. Do you want to have yeah, something you, out there for years to come where you're making fun of somebody or talking exactly. trash on somebody? Nobody well, it goes to, to sort of one of the rhetorical questions I ask, not only in that post but to the students at sometimes sometimes in the in the school, which is, okay, you're frustrated as an actor. Let me offer you a hypothetical. Here's a million dollars. It's yours. You can make whatever movie you want, starring you. Now, what's the movie? What's the story? Who are you playing? 
and about 95% of people stare at you with not a single answer in their brain because I think that most actors are wired for a reactive experience, namely like I will have an agent X who will get me audition Q that will get me job Z that will pay me something and my career will build. But that a whole idea, which you guys are talking about and we're all talking about of what do you do if you get to create it on your own? What story would you tell if you had a million dollars? And as I say in this post, I don't think people would take a million dollars and make a cynical, stupid mockumentary about their agent. I think if you had a million dollars, you suddenly would be like, okay, what, what story do I want to tell? Yeah. Which is that that paradigm, it's that thing that got us doing crazy shit when we were six and seven years old that in some way consistently led us back to this business. The idea of storytelling as opposed to the idea of cracking a joke or marketing yourself for Saturday Night Live or Funny or Die or a certain comedic slant, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really love all of that because, you know, uh, I guess maybe this is a conversation that, that stems from people who are uh, primarily theater artists or theater actors. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, say that, you know, they're the only ones with a story to tell, but what I'm trying to say is that there's always been for me this fear of like this this whole new media craze taking over and being just as you said uh just a bunch of crap you yeah. know it's like <clears throat> it's so much of our, our quote-unquote way into the business right now is like oh you got to make your own you know you got to do your own thing you got to make your own stuff you got to be like the, the mark gantz of the world where you're you're you're, you're producer director actor and you're putting this stuff up and you're putting it out there but the 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 thing is is the cost or at what cost um, ends up being the story. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like there's there there nobody's telling a story because it's 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 almost because like it's, that's the the most difficult part. No one has any passion about right. it. It's right. a, that's why I call it cynical cinema. It's it's purely calculated. It's calculated quote unquote storytelling or YouTube filmmaking or whatever it is calculated to get a gig, get an agent, get seen. And I think it, it's just that slight little sequences miss, which is, are you interested? Are you passionate? And if you tell a story about that, about something you're interested in, all of a sudden the odds go way up that the quality is going to be good because you're going to care about it. You're going to bring in people who do care about it. And all of a sudden, look, this is a professional town. When you get to the top of the industry, when you hit top casting people, top producers, they know their shit. They're not idiots. They know this stuff. They make their living off of it. And I don't think you can risk looking like a fool in front of them for the sake of, hey, let's get together and shoot something this weekend. It'll be a lot of fun. And we'll get on Funny or Die. Mm. And we'll get a sitcom contract off of it. Because that stuff is like a one in a million shot. You can't, you can't aim for that. It's like aiming to win the lottery. Yeah. You can't go for that. So in the absence of aiming to win the lottery, you must care. Like this trilogy you guys are putting together, there's care in that. You guys don't go through the hell you just went through to put together three shows at one time. Because you don't care. If you didn't, you'd go mad. You're going to go mad enough if you do care. And you guys talk with Gant. That guy cares Mm -hmm. about the band. And he pulled in all of his contacts over years and years and years of working crew to make that thing look amazing for the money that they had to shoot it. And now the opportunities come from that because he invested. Yeah, and that's actually a good segue. Um, what you were just saying before about the the industry people really knowing their stuff because you've talked. We mentioned this a few minutes ago. You talked about. 
people doing well actually you mentioned it too aj people doing theater to have to get an agent and mm-hmm. it, it being a showcase and whatnot and you wrote a great post on your blog about shit theater that's yeah, what you I called call, it i call and, it doing shit theater i'm trying to ingratiate myself yeah. <laughs> yeah, i'm winning friends and influencing <laughs> right. people you said hold or i paraphrase hold off inviting industry people until you've got a great part and a great play in order mm-hmm. not to be associated with amateurism uh, yeah at, and, and you and you also talked about even walking away from something if you realize that it is crap because yep. because your integrity is better than that particular job yeah well because the acting jobs are few and far between i think uh, actors too quickly often uh, say yes to projects that are not really going to help them and uh, and it, it, it's a very tricky thing because we can sit here and suddenly become snobs and the arbiters of what is great theater and well i think it's shit and so it is shit and that's not <laughs> right. the point of the post yeah. although i think a lot of people have the experience of going to see their friends in shows and going like, oh, my God. Now, there's a certain subjectivity to it. I'm sure people are seeing your show and maybe don't like it. They're seeing the show that I have running right now. They don't like it. That's their privilege. That's the right of any theater goer. But what I'm talking about is that actors violate their own integrity. They know in advance that it's shit. They know that this theater company is no good or that they're the best thing in it or that the director is clueless or the script is silly. And yet they're going to invest 300, 400 hours in this project, giving up work shifts, giving up class, giving up everything to be a part of an embarrassing production. And the, the trick is where it becomes not snobbery is that the actors know it's embarrassing. They are embarrassed by it if you ask them. And the way I, the reason I write about it is that I do ask them. I say, you know, if I feel I have enough of a connection, I'll say, why are you in this? Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And there is with underneath this desperation to work and to be seen. And I guess the point is be seen in something that is good and that you believe in. And if you believe in it, then subjectivity is subjectivity. People can come and say like, well, you believe in it, but I think it's shit. That's fine. That's the nature of the world. But too many actors I think are panicking and signing on to really bad plays in Riverside County or what have you and giving up their lives for stuff that they actually don't believe in. So a lot of what I'm trying to write about is a sense of the actor having it, uh, a sense of integrity about what they do, why they do it, and that that integrity is the thing that will keep them in this business during years where they may not be acknowledged for the work that they do. And uh, a lot of this business is a war of attrition. It's just survival. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who you go like, oh, man, I wish I could be this, like this kind of actor. Like Jeremy Piven, he's so great. Jeremy Piven's been in this town 20 years more, working away, hacking away at it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's about that integrity. Yeah. Yeah, right on. And and on that, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? <clears throat> well, we, I was just going to say that we. It's it's interesting because I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Trev. I feel like Alan's kind of addressing a certain number of our listeners who have kind of sent in questions, not necessarily regarding this subject matter in particular, but more along the lines of like, um, am I ready or is it ready? In other words, is my reel ready? Is my this ready? Is my that ready? And we and you know, there's that balance that we have to strike of like. <clears throat> being a perfectionist and yet having to get something out at some point so that you're not um, you're not always in this pursuit of perfection that may or may not ever come if you're you know too too much of too harsh on yourself as your own critic but I think there you know there is a lot to be said for having integrity when it comes to your work you know is it something that you are proud of you know you can be proud of it even if it's imperfect but there's a difference between being proud of something and and being like, oh my god, what am I doing here? Like yeah. you were saying, Alan, like the the director doesn't know what they're doing. And if you get the actor alone, <clears throat> uh, maybe in a bar with a beer in front of him, and say, listen, what are you doing? 
and they know the answer. They can look in the mirror and go like, I don't know what I'm doing. I knew I knew after two days that this was a boneheaded move. So that's the then lit- walk. That's then the litmus walk. test. That's the litmus <laughs> test. Here we go. Inside acting listeners yeah. from Alan Barton's <laughs> mouth. Stand in front of your bathroom mirror with a beer in your hand <laughs> and drink until you know you're doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah. I just got in big trouble. <laughs> Subtract the beer and you're right on. But it <laughs> yeah, is a matter true. of yeah, it's a matter of it's a matter of being able to look in the mirror and saying I truly believe in the people involved in this thing and I'm ha- or I'm having a blast. And then look, everyone right. gets involved with something that maybe comes out and you're like, you know what, that didn't come out the way I thought it was going to come out. Or yeah. you believe in it and some friend comes and says, I thought that was shit. You know, I had someone walk out on my play; they thought it was shit. That's going to happen. But uh, I think too many actors are giving up their integrity and doing stuff that they know is not good because of panic. They're panicking. And, uh, and desperation. Desperation. And I believe that that panic and desperation reads very clearly. Uh, so when you see some of this, uh, what I call cynical cinema, uh, short films, the desperation in it is what reeks. Yeah. You know, the, the, the desperately trying to be funny yeah. versus just tell me a story. Tell me a story. That's what we're all in this for. A good story trumps all. I don't care what the format is. I don't care if it's Inception at 160 million and 4,000 screens or your film that you shot for no money in your bedroom. They have equal power and now equal distribution channels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's gonna What's gonna be the common thing? A good story. Yeah, a good story. Yeah, Tony Rego, one of our recent guests, um, maybe ten episodes ago, talked about um, his experience of bringing one of his short films to this festival. And how everybody seemed to be kind of starstruck by him after all the film screened. And it wasn't because he thinks he's the shit or anything like that. It's because he kind of realized that all these films looked beautiful. They were all shot on really high definition, you know, beautiful cameras, you know, great cinematography. But his was the only one that actually told the story, had an mm-hmm. actual arc to it and, everything, and and told the story that was actually kind of uplifting. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know if you guys have done McKee's uh, famous screenwriting seminar. I have. Um, I've heard all about it. But yeah, I- <laughs> it was. It's something I, I, re- I recommend it to the students. Uh, he's getting on in years, and it, it, at some point it's not going to be happening, and, and it's a little piece of history if you can make it and have the bread to do it. It's expensive and all that. But the guy is brilliant about conventional story and really funny, and he leads off the seminar with the of that definition of what's a story and what isn't. And he does a hilarious riff on someone who's just like, let me just write about what happened in my life. And he goes on this thing of this meandering story that has no arc, no guidance, no direction, no nothing. And it's so funny the way he tells it. But a lot of people start are doing that kind of thing. There's yeah. no there's no story. What is a story? Yeah. And so to find that answer for yourself, I don't think the three of us are going to presume to be like, <clears throat> and now the definition of story, <laughs> the AJ, Trevor, and Alan. That's not the point, but uh, is there one? And trusting right, that instinct. Right. right. Where, where would, if, if you're, when your students come up against this kind of, or come to this point in their career where they're ready to start making their own stuff, do they ask you for guidance on, on what, where to maybe look for a, a good story in their life? Or what do you tell people when you talk about this? Well, uh, I, th- I don't get that question very often, for, and I'm not. You know, you ask me. I'm just. If that's the quick answer. No, mm. people don't ask me that very often. But I think the stories abound. You know, uh, even in adaptation, where uh, Kaufman is doing his little riff on McKee, being played by brilliantly by Brian Cox, Cox yeah. and he asks yeah. that question. If you remember the movie, he asked the question, "What if you don't have anything to write about?" And Brian Cox, as Robert McKee, goes ape shit on him ape shit about where you can find stories love loss death uh, pain romance it's all happening around you every day 
So it's a matter of opening your eyes and latching onto that in some personal way. Welcome back. Hope you guys dug part one of the interview with Alan Barton. I know that I was sitting in silence in my car for about 20 minutes after that, just digesting the things he was saying. Yeah, and just wait um, until part two. Until part two. <laughs> I feel like it. I feel like that conversation like heated up. It did. Nice, it definitely nice and slow, like a like we were cooking something, <laughs> cooking some knowledge bombs, baking a noodle. That's, a that's what we're doing. We're making a noodle. Yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think that does it for uh, episode twenty. No, I'm, God, episode thirty. Yeah, I keep forgetting yeah. we're in the thirties now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, feel free to get in touch with us for future episodes. Um, you can hit us up at insideactingpodcast.com. We have an email address: insideactingpodcast@gmail.com. You can tweet at us. We got insideacting uh, twitter.com/insideacting at insideacting on on Twitter, or we have our individual account. I'm at twitter.com slash digital actor. I am twitter.com slash Trevor Algott. Uh, of course, you can find us on Facebook. Just do a little search for Inside Acting. Um, take that same search, copy, paste it into your little search in the iTunes uh, store, and uh, look us up on iTunes. Leave us a review there. You can uh, find us on actorrated.com. You can oh, look yeah. us up uh, and just leave us that. a review on that. <clears throat> or Ustream, for that matter. Or Ustream. Yeah. Ustream.com slash Inside Acting, although we didn't record this uh, particular episode. Right. And, of, uh, of course, We've got our, our voicemail, um, which is one two one three two actors. That's one two one three two 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 eight six seven seven. And lastly, but not and lastly, but not leastly, lastly, uh, yeah, leastly, you can uh, you can donate to the podcast. Uh, as most of our longtime listeners know, we do this podcast completely out of pocket. We pay for transportation costs, file hosting fees, and not to mention the hours and hours and hours of time that goes into producing each episode. So it's huge if you guys can help us out covering some of those production costs. Um, in the past, we've gotten some great donations, and actually now the only reason we're still going is because of those donations. That's we bought uh, a bunch of gear with the donation money, and that's the only – our gear broke. So if we had yeah. that donations, we would be out of commission right now. So thank you to everybody who's donated in the past. Don't be shy about donating now. A dollar would help. Fifty cents would help. Whatever you want to send would help immensely. So – um just head on over to our website, look on the right-hand side, there's a little PayPal button there. Each donation you make, regardless of size, is tax-deductible if you're an actor. You can just write it off as an education expense. So hang on to the receipt you get from PayPal, and know that we thank you very much for that. And uh, we want to leave you on this episode with um, an email, well, it's a quote, mm-hmm. right, from Michael Jordan. Uh, um, actually, it's from it's from Robert Mack. Okay. Um, I think he About. wrote a book. Yeah. About Michael Jordan. Robert Mack quoting Michael Jordan. So, <laughs> so, so uh, I you was were kinda, right. Everyone was right. <laughs> yeah. Everyone was right. But it came in, an, and then it came in an email, so we're hearing it like fourth person. <laughs> yeah. It came in an email from Which Matt was from Wilder. a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Matt Wilder is um, someone that we, we talked about recently in the podcast. He booked a gig uh, for Nickelodeon recently. Um, and he wrote us in and said, thanks for the podcast. Um, he's been great about supporting us and spreading the word. And he shared this with us, and I, we wanted to, to read it at the end. The quote is, All great champions, most of whom are optimists, have become great because of, not in spite of, great adversity. Michael Jordan, a perennial optimist, once said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 
On 26 occasions, I have been entrusted to take the game's winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. If ever there was a case for optimism, this is it. Brilliant. You can't be afraid. You have to embrace failure, you know? Yeah. And what was the other quote you said? I've, I've, I've missed every shot I've never taken. Yeah, I think Wayne Gretzky said, uh, I, you miss 100% shots of the... You don't... Yeah, you miss 100% shots of the... Percent? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. It's, it's only 2 o'clock and I'm already like, <laughs> bedtime. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So All right. Um, hopefully that was a, a, a bit of inspiration for you guys. Um, we will see you in the next episode. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to miss a few shots. <laughs>